0: Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. Antibiotics have made a huge contribution to human health by successfully tackling infectious diseases worldwide. But what happens when these antibiotics are no longer effective? How much do we know about the resistance that bacteria develop? And what new approaches are scientists looking at to tackle this problem? I'm Ruby Ellis, an undergraduate biochemistry student at Magdalen College, and today I will be talking to Professor Craig McLean at the Department of Zoology, whose research is focused on understanding the evolutionary biology behind antibiotic resistance. So I'd like to begin by just thanking you for coming on today and talking about antibiotic resistance, and I think the best way to start is to just define this term and kind of explain a bit about what it means.
1: Yeah. Okay. so antibiotics are chemicals that we use to treat bacterial infections. They're small molecules that are very harmful to bacteria. They kill them, but they aren't very harmful towards us. And so that's what antibiotics are. Most of them are actually naturally occurring toxins that bacteria make to kill each other. And we've found ways to isolate some of these molecules and really mass produce them for use in medicine and agriculture. And so what antibiotic resistance is, is it's the ability of bacteria to resist antibiotics. And so when bacteria are resistant to an antibiotic, they can continue to grow even when people are being treated with that antibiotic and they continue continue to cause infections.
0: That's great. Thank you. So kind of how big is this problem and how fast is it growing and how much of a threat does it pose to us?
1: Yeah, so this is really seen as being one of the biggest threats to human health today. So antibiotic resistance now causes uh, more than a million deaths per year. Uh, in the year before COVID, uh, it was the leading cause of human death due to an infectious disease. And We don't actually know that well how quickly it's growing, but what's clear is that it's a problem that's growing year on year. So right now it's causing somewhere between one and maybe as high as five million deaths per year, and that's really predicted to increase so that by the mid-21st century, antibiotic-resistant infections could actually overtake cancer as a leading cause of human mortality.
0: Oh, Okay. Yeah. So a big a big issue in the societies today. Absolutely.
1: And I think one of the things that often gets lost in those numbers um, is actually who is most at risk from antibiotic resistant infections. And there are really two groups that are most at risk. So those are the elderly, and it's also young children. And so this is actually uh, something I think that sometimes gets lost in the numbers uh, and why antibiotics have had a really dramatic impact on human lifespan is by decreasing childhood mortality and so i think it's something that's really worth bearing in mind and where there's a real difference between antibiotic resistance and something like cancer
0: right yeah thank you so what are the main drivers would you say behind the growth of antibiotic resistance today
1: yeah so the number one driver is antibiotic use and so antibiotics are really used in two contexts they're used in in medicine where we use them to treat sick people. And they're used uh, very heavily in agriculture as well. And they're used in agriculture in two different ways. So they're used to treat animals that are sick. So, you know, farm animals get sick with bacterial infections, the same that we do. Um, and in some parts of the world, they're also used as a growth promoter. So they're just added to, animal f- to feed that's given to farm animals. And this is done because it accelerates the rate at which farm animals grow.
0: Right. So is this kind of across the world that this method
1: is used And no, it isn't across the world. So in the EU, for example, it was banned, uh, I think in 2006. Um, But if we look at globally, this is a really big use of antibiotics. And and antibiotic resistance is very much a global problem. People move between countries, bacteria move between countries, things like agricultural products move between countries. So it's, it's very much a global problem.
0: Great. So I think if we start to talk now a bit about the science behind antibiotic resistance. Um, so do you think you could explain a bit about the mechanism that underpins this process?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so the mechanisms, um, there's kind of a whole almost you know, industry of academics who study the mechanisms behind antibiotic resistance. And, and we know this is something that we know a lot about. And basically bacteria become resistant to antibiotics in two main ways. So the first way is by mutations in genes in, in, the, in the pathogen bacteria's genome. And very often, so say for example, if you have an antibiotic that, that targets one particular protein or one particular structure within a bacteria, what these mutations will do is they'll change the structure of that target so that the antibiotic can't effectively bind to it anymore. And this makes the bacteria resistant resistant to antibiotics. And so this is the kind of classical mechanism uh, by which bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. Um, but what, what we also see and what is uh, kind of a bigger overall healthcare problem and also in some ways more interesting um, in, in terms of the biology is what's called mobile antibiotic resistance. So one of the really interesting things that bacteria do that we don't do, is they acquire genes from the environment around them. So there's a process called horizontal gene transfer. And a lot of this is mediated by things called plasmids. So these are kind of like little DNA molecules that can move between bacterial cells. And plasmids have played a really important role in spreading antibiotic resistance genes between species of bacteria. And these often are antibiotic resistance genes that actually just chemically break down or modify antibiotics Um, and and so so these genes have spread between species of bacteria and one of the things that's kind of off that's quite interesting is a lot of these genes actually seem to come from the bacteria that make antibiotics so bacteria make antibiotics and they have genes that protect them themselves against the antibiotics that these that they make, and a lot of these genes have actually spread via plasmids to distantly related pathogenic bacteria that cause infections in humans and animals.
0: Oh wow! Okay, so plasmids—they're small circular pieces of DNA, right? Yeah, absolutely. Great. And, okay, and so these can are able to kind of move within a colony and kind of spread the genes that promote this antibiotic resistance.
1: That's right. So, so a lot of the a lot of the kind of biggest healthcare worry, uh, kind of resistance genes have spread, uh, have spread by this mechanism and it's and it's it's a really neat mode of evolution, but in this case it's very problematic.
0: Right, yeah. So I think if we talk a bit now about what the future of antibiotic use is, so how are we gonna have to change the way that we use antibiotics?
1: So 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 this you've asked me the the million-dollar question, and I could, spend, I could spend a long time answering this. Um, so I, I think that there's been the problem of resistance is very much global, and there's been a big effort to limit the use of antibiotics so that we make sure that we're only giving antibiotics, for example, to people who need it when we're sick, that we're only giving antibiotics to people who have bacterial infections and not giving antibiotics, for example, to people who have a cold or a flu. And a lot of a lot of organizations have been really good about reducing antibiotic consumption in medicine. So the NHS, for example, has made you know a real effort to reduce antibiotic consumption. So that's great. And reducing consumption um, is 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 part of the solution. Uh, I think as well we, we can look to agriculture. Um, you know, so obviously uh, farm animals uh, are going to get sick from, from bacterial infections. And of course, you know, we we need to treat them as well. But right now, uh, as it is today, we have the same antibiotics that are being used to treat infections in humans that are being used in farm animals. And that's something where I think we could make actually uh, uh, real improvements uh, by developing or by giving different antibiotics to animals than the ones that we use in humans. That would really reduce the consumption of antibiotics that are for use in humans. And certainly, we should stop using antibiotics as growth promoters to make farm animals fat and quicker.
0: Right, yeah. No, that last point isn't something that I was aware of. It's something I realized was used. So um, would you say there's kind of an effort within drug companies to put money into research uh, with antibiotic resistance? Is there kind of a motivation for them to, yeah. to do this? or
1: yeah, so this has, been, this has been a really big problem, actually, and, and uh, basically the kind of antibiotic development pipeline has kind of dried up, and for a long time, uh, my impression is that what pharmaceutical companies did is they just screened these huge libraries of chemical compounds, millions of compounds for antibiotic activity, and this is an approach that was very successful for finding anti-cancer drugs, but it hasn't really worked for antibiotics. And I, so I think we're at a point though, where there's a lot of optimism. Um, and I think that people are trying to are developing new and more novel and original ways to look for antibiotics. And at the same time, the kind of incentives to develop new antibiotics have really increased. And so I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that this is gonna to lead to an increase in the rate at which we develop new antibiotics. We clearly need new antibiotics. Um, so, so, so I think I have some optimism in that area, um, but there are the hesitation from, from, far, from, from the pharmaceutical companies in part comes from like the returns on the investment that they're gonna make in developing new antibiotics. Um, Because when antibiotics work, they often cure people very quickly. So you don't need to take them for that. Most people don't need to take antibiotics for that long. And the problem, of course, is that in a sense, antibiotics have a kind of limited shelf life because of the way in which resistance evolves. And this makes antibiotics um, much less, in in a way, it makes them less attractive for pharmaceutical companies from from a kind of financial point of view.
0: Yeah, so there's kind of less financial incentive to put money into antibiotics.
1: Yeah, but there's some, a lot of people are thinking there's actually just the U.S. Congress, I think is is proposing or has passed an act called the Pasteur Act that's going to have a really different model, basically, for how to, I think we need to change uh, the model for how or how uh, the whole kind of economic model behind uh, antibiotic development but I think that kind of the wheels are starting to turn on that.
0: Mm, yeah definitely. So do you think you could explain a bit about the science behind the need to finish a course of antibiotics? I know this is something that we're always told to do by doctors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so my advice is always to to do what your doctor tells you to do. Um, but this is actually something that has been uh, that has been debated in the literature at the moment about whether you know whether people you know how, what how long courses of antibiotics should be and whether or not you should people should stop taking them when they feel better or not. But I think there there needs for the moment you need to follow the guidelines that you're that you're being given by your by your GP by your doctor.
0: Yeah, definitely. Great. So I understand that some of your recent research looks into the effect of antibiotics being used across farming. So do you think you could explain a bit about the possible consequences of this? I know we've touched on this, but if yeah. you kind of delve into your research a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so really what my... Uh, group has worked on is, is an antibiotic called Calistin, and this is an antibiotic that was developed uh, a long time ago and it was um, it was at, at the time really before the resistance crisis and people found that this was a, 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 an antibiotic that worked really well but had some kind of undesirable side effects towards humans, it wasn't that easy to get it to work in humans um, and so it really became used in veterinary medicine and then people realized that actually if you just put it in animal that it, but it's an antibiotic that's cheap to produce and that if you put it in animal food, um, then, then there's a kind of economic return on that, basically, that, that farm animals fatten faster. And so it became used in parts of the world at a really big scale as a, as a growth promoter, something that was just routinely added to animal feed. And so it really was used at a scale where, you know, like tens of thousands of tons of it were being, being used uh, as massive scale. in in agriculture, especially actually in Southeast Asia. And eventually resistance started to spread uh, to to, to this antibiotic. And uh, so resistance in some parts of the world to this antibiotic, colistin, is is quite widespread. And um, the, the problem with this antibiotic is that the way it works and the way it attacks bacteria is actually quite similar to how parts of our immune system uh, attack to f- fight off bacteria. So so our immune system helps protect us against bacterial infection, and there's especially something called the innate immune system that is a really important front line of defense. And part of that are chemicals called antimicrobial peptides um, that, that we use to fight off bacterial infection. And colistin works, has the similarities in its chemical structure and how it works with our antimicrobial peptides. And what we've found is that the genes that, confer, that were selected by the use of, of calistin in, in, uh, in agriculture confer resistance to antimicrobial peptides that are produced by humans, but also that are produced by agricultural animals, so pigs and chickens. And, and there are also other ways, basically, in which this, this colistin resistance gene, MCR1, makes bacteria more resistant to our immune system. And so this is actually, this is obviously pretty worrying. So this is a case where the use of, of, uh, of an antibiotic in agriculture has actually ultimately, and kind of accidentally, led to the evolution of pathogenic bacteria that have higher resistance to our immune systems.
0: Right, yeah, so scary stuff. Um, and when was this antibiotic list and kind of put into use how long ago
1: um i don't know the exact year when it so it was very much discovered in the kind of mid-20th century i don't know exactly when it went when when it started when it started to be used um I guess and it continues to be used for example in the UK so it is still used so it's you it's now become an important last line of defense antibiotic for treating people with multi-drug resistant infections and it's still used in agriculture not as a growth promoter but I think in agriculture my impression as well is that it's used very much as a kind of last resort antibiotic so it's still it's still being used here. Um, one. One kind of interesting thing and one kind of, I guess, positive note is that really one country where it was used at a really big scale as a growth promoter was China. And the Chinese government actually, when when MCR1 mediated colistin resistance was discovered, they banned the use of colistin as a growth promoter. So that reduced colistin consumption in China by about 90%. And the kind of good news is that the, the frequency of colistin resistance, both in animals and in humans, uh, fell quickly after that intervention. So this is an antibiotic where controlling, limiting consumption actually will work to limit resistance.
0: So the kind of negative effects aren't necessarily permanent if the, if the use is kind of terminated?
1: We'll see, I I think it's too early to say that MCR1 has completely disappeared um, and and it probably hasn't completely disappeared from China. Um, But what's clear is that its prevalence has really reduced since they banned the use of it as a growth promoter.
0: Right, okay. So um, are scientists exploring any other alternative approaches to treat bacterial infections? Um, And I was wondering if you could kind of explain a bit about the science behind any novel techniques?
1: Wow. So this is this is the other million-dollar question, and and so and so part of me, you know, really wonders if the if part of the problem with antibiotics is that the basic idea, the basic paradigm here, is wrong, and and I, I think it's clear that there there isn't there's never going to be a kind of silver bullet solution to, the, to, to this problem and to dealing with bacterial disease and I think we do need to be thinking about alternatives to, to, to antibiotics and there's actually a lot of research uh, that's going on that's going on into this topic right now uh, so some of the one of my real interests is in using something called phage so these are viruses that infect bacteria but not us and the ways in which these can be used to either prevent bacterial infections in the first place or to treat them and so so there's this is something that has been uh, uh, this is an ongoing topic and i think one where there've been some really interesting developments recently and i think something that, that this is something that's going to become part of the solution it won't provide the whole solution but will become part of the solution to the antibiotic uh, resistance crisis um, another thing that people are really thinking about now—one word that you hear a lot—is microbiome, and and so people are really thinking about how we can uh, how we can use things like probiotics and prebiotics to change our microbiome in such a way. That we are more resistant to becoming infected in the first place. Things like having kind of friendly bacteria in our guts that are going to prevent the kind of overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria. And again, this is an area where there's int- very interesting things that are that are going on. Another kind of cool strategy, um, but one that faces, uh, I think, at the moment still faces some pretty significant regulatory and scientific hurdles is using things like CRISPR-Cas. So the idea here, so CRISPR-Cas is part of a bacterial immune system uh, against phage, but that we can manipulate and use to make all kinds of genetic modifications. And so one of the things you can do is you can take this and you can program it to recognize and destroy bacterial DNA sequences. So you can take a CRISPR-Cas system and you can program it to destroy example bacteria carrying an antibiotic resistance gene and then you can kind of then the idea is then you can take these you know genetically or these modified genes and somehow let them loose into 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 bacterial communities and so i think there's a lot of interesting science here but i think there's some there's some pretty significant hurdles in terms of applying this technology
0: Right, so would you say um, CRISPR-Cas9 is kind of more of a theoretical approach at the moment without having been successfully applied? Uh,
1: yeah, I think the print, some of the principles are, are, are really clear, and people can do uh, amazing experiments with this in the lab, but using it to actually... Tackle antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the real in the real world. Uh, I, I think people haven't really shown yet that that it can work for that, and I think that there's some pretty significant challenges there. And one of those is how are you going to take these. CRISPR-Cas systems that you're going to make these kind of synthetic CRISPR-Cas systems, and how are you going to disseminate those in real-world bacterial communities? It's 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 a big problem, but there are, but there are a lot of very bright people who are who are thinking about this, and it's another area where I think you know scientifically at least there's the potential to make a lot of progress. Um, part of the challenge for this field, though, will also be the regulatory hurdles around, you know, the the, the idea of that you would effectively be genetically modifying bacterial communities. And and that's something that I hope uh, at some point that we as a society will be a, willing to accept.
0: So would you say kind of the future of dealing with infectious diseases is going to become more holistic and kind of combine a lot of different approaches
1: absolutely i think that that's kind of silver bullet idea of we're going to have one cure for this problem is like a very mid-20th century approach to thinking about infectious disease and and i think antibiotic resistance Um, is really there isn't just one problem there are many many different problems and 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 each of them will have their own solutions and I think that that that's that's that I think that's what the future holds it's not one solution it's many different solutions another thing that I didn't mention but that you know that I think actually that the kind of SARS-CoV-2 has really hit home is the importance of vaccines so we have good vaccines against some bacterial pathogens but certainly not all of them. And developing some some better vaccines against bacterial pathogens, I think, would also be you know a, a really useful vaccines are a, are a fantastic public health intervention.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, um, could you kind of explain the concept of fitness costs and what this actually means for antibiotic resistance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, when bacteria uh, acquire a new mutation that makes them resistant to antibiotics, or when they pick up uh, an antibiotic resistance gene on a plasmid, it usually comes at a cost to them. And, and so that things like they will grow slower, often they're actually less virulent, they're just overall less fit. And so this is something uh, that, that we've worked on a lot in, in my lab and, and that other labs have worked on a lot over the years. And part of the reason why, people, why scientists are really interested in this is that given these fitness costs, it suggests that when we reduce antibiotic consumption, resistance should go away. And the kind of the problem here is that actually even when resistance is initially costly, bacteria can actually evolve what are called compensatory adaptations um, that, that essentially offset or eliminate these costs. And when they do this, it's really bad because then you have bacteria that are now resistant to antibiotics, but that are no longer paying any price for it. And once you're in that situation, it becomes much less clear That reducing antibiotic consumption is going to lead to reduced resistance. In many ways, reducing antibiotic consumption is the simplest intervention that we can have to deal with this problem. And fitness costs are really important because the efficacy of this approach depends on fitness costs.
0: Right, yeah. So it kind of seems to be like a bit of an arms race between bacteria and humans to try and kind of figure out a way to prevent infectious diseases.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And at the moment, it's a pretty one-sided arms race. And so hopefully what some of these new interventions are going to do are going to let us kind of regain the upper hand in some ways.
0: Right, great. So thank you very much for coming on today to talk about antibiotic resistance. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Ruby.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpod.co.uk.